0: People that want to fall in love. To be rather sexist about it. Uh, That Walt Disney and like Larry King. Super intelligence. That's a term that needs unpacking too. That's a scary thought for people. Like You need to have so much conviction and faith in... The future of anti-aging and that someone will actually open up the cryo chamber to wake you up i'm, I'm not convinced
1: years. you see i'm not even convinced that post-human super will choose to do so they may regard all darwinian life as malware sure. but it keeps options open
0: Well, it's nice to meet you. I um, I wanted to bring you on because I am just so fascinated with what you're working on, and I've I read some of the the papers. Obviously, didn't really understand a lot of it. I'll be honest, but <laughs> why I wanted to bring you on. I, I first remember like hearing about transhumanism. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Like Ray Kurzweil, it, it was one of the kind of the kind of mm-hmm. the people that predicted. He's done a lot of predictions, but You know, I think one of the things that he predicted was that by 2029 that humans and robots will converge. Um, So that kind of like got me into the space and really got me more interested in it. But it seems like I haven't really talked to a lot of transhumanism, uh, transhumanist folks since then. So first off, my, my first question to you is like, what is a what is transhumanism and what's a transhumanist? Yeah, you'll get dozens of different
1: definitions of transhumanism, possibly more definitions than there are transhumanists. But very broadly, I define transhumanism in terms of the three supers that's super intelligence, super longevity, and super happiness. And broadly speaking, transhumanists would like to have uh, a triple S civilization. Uh, Each of these three supers needs. Unpacking super longevity, relatively straightforward. Perhaps this is the idea that just as silicon robots can be upgraded indefinitely, there's no reason in principle why the same can't be done for organic robots. So no, transhumanists do have this backup strategy of cryonics or even cryothanasia for oldsters who probably justifiably fear they're not going to actually make the transition. So that's super longevity. Super intelligence. <clears throat> that's a term that needs unpacking too. Many different conceptions of what... <clears throat> Superintelligence amounts to ranging from machine superintelligence, i.e. perhaps some kind of intelligence explosion of runaway software, recursively self-improving software-based AI to, you mentioned Ray Kurzweil, this kind of hypothetical fusion of humans and our machines to another conception of superintelligence, which is probably closer to mine, which in which case, in which our, our successors are also going to be our biological descendants, genetically rewritten, massively augmented by AI, but nonetheless full spectrum superintelligence that is that is not merely off-the-scale autistic IQ, but also <coughs> able to access multiple different state spaces of consciousness, super sentient. <coughs> Third of the supers, super happiness, which is closest to my heart. This is the idea that we can replace the biology of involuntary pain and suffering with life based on information-sensitive gradients of well-being culminating eventually in life based on gradients of superhuman bliss. Um, And the idea would be not just humans, but essentially yeah, the whole biosphere is going to be programmable and yeah, we can get rid of the horrors of
0: Darwinian life and replace them hopefully by something sublime. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, it, it, for me, like the first thing that I would think about when, when I think about transformation <laughs> is things around longevity and mm-hmm. intelligence, which I think now a lot of people are talking about more with Neuralink and what Elon Musk is doing um, around that field. But what got you interested in happiness uh was it just that there wasn't a lot of focus in the transhumanism community around helping people with super happiness i suppose from an early
1: age i
0: might be called what would now be called a transhumanist
1: As as a as a young child i was preoccupied by death and aging i wanted to have uh, my late guinea pig, Snowdrop, cryonically frozen? Uh, I was yeah, since, since what age were you f- were you
0: thinking about that?
1: Well, in the case of Snowdrop, that must have been about twelve or thirteen. Yes, I was. Uh, you know, once I I was told this was a long time ago that one left uh, one lost two thousand brain cells a day after the age of eighteen. So, age six or seven or something, I was going to find what? a cure for the. Aging process by the age of 80. Well, of course, hopelessly unrealistic. Then in my early teens, I read Robert Ettinger, The Prospect of Immortality. And yeah, I thought, well, I'm probably going to get uh, frozen instead. But more than death and aging, though. uh, Yeah, I was a very angst-ridden, depressive teenager focused on the problem of suffering, not just in humans, but non-human animals. Yeah, I'm a third generation Vegetarian, vegan was fascinated by wireheading. Uh, that's intracranial self-stimulation, which which shows no to- to- tolerance. And I couldn't understand, as a depressive, angst-ridden teen, why most of my peers didn't share my enthusiasm. Perpetual happiness—you could wire up uh-huh. your reward circuitry.
0: What's uh, the, heard, can, you, can you just explain that briefly?
1: Yes, this is the idea that by placing a, a electrodes in your mesolimbic dopamine system, it is possible to uh, induce perpetual euphoria. Now, they used to be they used to be called the pleasure centers. It's probably more accurate to de- describe them as a. As desire centers, but yes, as a teen, you know, teenager, reading about this uh, phenomenon that showed no tolerance, and apparently, everyone could be happy all the time if they if they had their reward circuitry stimulated like this. Now, this is, is like
0: dopamine, serotonin, like that part of your brain, or is that something? <laughs> yeah, it, it's as, the science has, has has updated, but the dopamine used to
1: be called the pleasure chemical it's now probably better called the desire chemical and that wire heading induces this frenzy of desire and anticipation uh yeah. but uh yeah i mean this is this is not transhumanism but this this was what gave me the you know the first glimpse that it really was possible to defeat the biology of suffering and from then on uh, thinking about how to recalibrate the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is this set of negative feedback mechanisms in the brain that stop stop most of us being very happy or very unhappy for long. Mm. And I realized, you know, thinking through these issues that if people weren't prepared to buy into wireheading, we needed some way to recalibrate the hedonic treadmill. And yeah. this was long before the the human genome had been decoded. So I was interested in different uh, drugs and pharmacotherapies that would actually recalibrate the hedonic treadmill. Then I began to think more closely about, uh, yeah, the possibility of hedonic uplift by genome reform, Uh, Red Drexler's engines of creation, uh, the idea of uh, nanotechnology, But yeah, uh, essentially the abolitionist project, this one strand of transhumanism, the idea that we can replace the biology of pain and suffering by a new architecture of mind, life based entirely on gradients of intelligent bliss. Yeah, I assumed that my ideas were unpublishable. I mean, this is crazy crazy stuff by the standards of, uh of, of the you wrote time this in
0: 1995 right the uh yeah,
1: essentially i wrote like the hedonistic ago, yeah. imperative uh in 1995 this online manifesto this this realization hey i can actually write for anyone i started off writing for a notional audience of analytic philosophers with whom i tended to identify even though i'm not a career academic but halfway through realizing that. Uh, essentially one could write for a global audience and so I started to jazz it up a bit and yeah outlining the abolitionist project Paradise Engineering and a young postgrad called Nick Bostrom got in touch Uh, we set up the World Transhumanist Association now Humanity Plus Um, I'm tempted to say I'm not a typical transhumanist but then who is a typical typical transhumanist <laughs> more transhumanists are probably focused on either radical life extension or super intelligence yeah. but yeah the, tra- the transhumanist declaration commits us to the well-being of all sentience how do yeah, you classify
0: like being called a transhumanist like what's the what's what what are the things that you need to do like do you need a public do you need a paper published around the topic of transhumanism like what if i because i write for like inc.com so what if i like write about transhumanism like am i transhumanist now like what's the category
1: if you want to transcend your biological limitations and enable other sentient beings to transcend their biological limitations i would say Yes, you're uh, a transhumanist. If you want to defeat the biology of aging, if you want to see intelligence amplification, if you want to get rid of the biology of pain and suffering, you're a transhumanist. I mean, sometimes it's called it's you know this term thrown around thrown around cult, but there is no official yeah. body of, of 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 transhumanist doctrine or or anything like it. Mean, much simpler if there were, I sometimes allude to the transhumanist declaration. But yeah, if you speak to other transhumanists, you'll get often quite differing uh, uh, definitions. Yeah. Uh, If you don't want to stick with the status quo, uh, if you, you know, this kind of liberation biology that, yeah, instead of just growing old, crumbling away, accepting your existing reward circuitry, if you want to spread this message to, yeah, the broader world, then yeah, you're a you're a transhumanist. Um, cool.
0: I don't need a the... membership or anything like that. Where I need, I need a referral from another transhumanist.
1: No, I mean, so in the first decade of this century, the World Transhumanist Association was the kind of overarching organisation, and since then, the influence of transhumanist ideas has has grown, but the movement itself has balkanized in so many in so many ways. It's that the label is too useful to give up, you know, just like left and right in politics. We all know they're hopelessly simplistic in one sense, but you can't understand politics without the labels left and right. Likewise, the term transhumanist, it is a rich diversity of different traditions uh, that it is broadly useful to to, to speak of, tra- like I said, I, I still, I, I'm still fond of this. The three supers. Many transhumanists would perhaps add a, add a super to this. I think they can probably be all, all encompassed in the notion of, of a full spectrum super intelligence. You know, kind of, uh, superhuman capacity for empathy or love or cooperation. A rich enough conception of super intelligence can encompass them all.
0: Yeah, the three supers definitely keeps it simple and organized people can remember threes as well so it i think i'm it made made a lot of sense for me when even when i'm trying to explain it to people from someone that doesn't really know anything about transhumanism that says a lot right um so talk to me about 1995 when you wrote the abolition is that is that when you wrote the abolitionist project Essentially, I was looking for a
1: snappy title for a manifesto, and I would have loved to have called it really something like the moral imperative to use biotechnology Mm. to get rid of suffering throughout the living world. Phew, what a mouthful. I settled for the hedonistic imperative, which is a nod to Kant's categorical imperative. It's not, in one sense, ideal because hedonism conjures up something, you know, pleasure that is. Are the shallow or one dimensional and amoral? It's not totally misleading, though, because if we are prepared to rewrite our own source code and upgrade our reward circuitry, yeah, life could be more hedonistic in the sense of more raw bliss than anything physiologically possible today. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, one needs to unpack what hedonism means in the title. at uh, a later date. I, I wrote, you know, talking about the abolitionist project, which sounds, I think, more morally serious. Not ideal in the sense that one has to specify what it is one is uh, abolishing. Um, but yeah, essentially, the core, the core idea that by recalibrating the hedonic treadmill and upgrading our reward circuitry, it's not. A utopia or paradise in the traditional sense. It's like imagine waking up tomorrow morning in a fantastically good mood. You can still have your values and preferences and relationships intact. It's not buying into my conception of paradise and the good life, which might be very different from yours. But yeah, your default setting could be incomparably richer. And yeah, if we could extend the blessings of, hedonic uplift to the rest of the living world mean, I, yeah I, I would say that is that is a moral imperative and over the years i have yeah developed these themes in my writing back in 1995 i couldn't anticipate uh so called synthetic gene drives that can be used to cheat the laws of mendelian inheritance and drive benign genes across uh the biosphere you know happy genes low pain genes across the biosphere back in 1995 cultured meat which i was writing about was just science fiction and back in 1995 yeah i so said the human genome was hadn't been decoded so uh yeah it was all very uh schematic but hearing right
0: Yeah, because like, there wasn't a lot in 1995, we were talking about using the modem, even in the 2000s to get internet like this, none of this zoom calls, uh, you know, across the country would be even happening, you know, even back in the day. So what did you see coming? What trends did you see in, you know, the mid 1990s that most people weren't seeing? And what were some of the predictions that you made, or theories that you had? And how much of that do you see coming true? That have come true and that you think will come true in the next 20 to 50 years? Well,
1: let's start with the good stuff. Something like cultured meat. We're still waiting for it to routinely hit the supermarket shelves, but I think this is going to inaugurate not merely a dietary revolution, but a A moral revolution in our treatment of non human animals. And people can acknowledge in the abstract that a pig, let's say, is as sentient and sapient as a toddler. But how many people really think through the implications? And though I would strenuously urge everyone to adopt veganism in practice, we're only going to get factory farms and slaughterhouses shut and outlawed when people can just buy routinely in the shelves an identical product to what they're used uh to eating and
0: so like beyond uh, meat is
1: that yeah it's there are both meat substitutes and literal lab-grown cultured meat that is that is genetically identical but it's instead of coming from a butchered unhuman animal uh yeah is is actually grown. Uh it's it's probably the, the 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 future of food. Most people describe themselves as animal lovers. They don't want to think about slaughterhouses. But realistically, yeah, the way this dietary trans is you know is gonna happen is when people can just routinely choose at the supermarket the cruelty-free uh alternative. So that's in that in that sense I anticipated that's one thing I didn't. I mean, I, this this is on a slightly more somber note. I was anticipating a reproductive revolution of designer babies. And when in 2018, the first designer babies, CRISPR gene edited babies uh, were produced in China, I thought, yes, at last the revolution is going to take, take off because Once all prospective parents routinely can choose by pre implantation genetic screening and counseling and soon genome editing, everything from the approximate hedonic set point to hedonic range to pain thresholds. Yeah, Uh, everything. Uh, Everything. I mean, people mention eye color because it seems trivial and compared to the really serious stuff, it is trivial. But imagine, yeah, you can choose effectively how happy your child is going to be how much pain your child will will suffer i mean that i would say is profoundly important that bringing new life potentially suffering into the world people ought to take their responsibilities very seriously and if one is going to bring new life into the world one ought to load the genetic dice in favor of one's kids
0: yeah Um, for society as a whole right it's not just for the kid and for you as a parent it's depression, yeah. like all of these shootings that are happening, it's all because of these issues.
1: Yeah. And I was hopeful as, yeah, when this happens and it could have gone the other, the, the other, the other way, uh, you know, China could have decided to power, to, to power ahead. However, this, this scientist was disavowed. The scientist in question was probably trying to create smart babies with HIV protection as as the cover story i mean it said the particular yeah. mutation induced actually boost cognitive performance in non-human animals he was naive he knew what he was doing and it'll be very interesting to see if the kids in question do actually grow up abnormally bright too because they've got this mutation but yeah so because of the uh the scandal involved and the controversy uh, essentially, the revolution is is paused. I think it will happen. Most people may be uneasy about designer babies, but they acknowledge that uh, gene therapy to correct serious genetic diseases is morally acceptable. But most people don't yet accept the idea that one should choose the pain thresholds, the hedonic set point, the hedonic range of their future children, and to get rid of suffering and to create a world where everyone can enjoy life based on gradients of bliss there's going to need to be a reproductive revolution and though i think it will happen i i it's gonna i suspect sadly take hundreds of years this is the opposite you know ray Kurzweil much shrewder from the point of view of marketing uh whether 2029 20, fused with our machines or 2045 on the front cover of time magazine the year humans become immortal that resonates with people more than if you say you think it's going to take hundreds of years I and mean, yeah. i would love to see a hundred year plan to defeat the biology of suffering universal access as i said to pre-implantation genetic screening counselling, CRISPR, the lot but
0: um, I- I still don't get why it would take – hundred. like, what happened after that initial 2018 incident? Did the Chinese government decide to just ban all forms of genetic genome editing in China?
1: There was a lot of professional jealousy amongst scientists because, after all, all children are unique, untested genetic experiments. Uh, He wasn't – we don't know the full story, but nonetheless, the scientist in question – didn't clear everything with the relevant authorities and so yeah there was a a scandal if the scientist had chosen something else rather than hiv protection yeah perhaps the scandal might have uh, unfolded uh, uh differently so i mean i think it will eventually i said the revolution will happen and i would love to see under the auspices of the world health organization this this program of pre-implantation, genetic screening, counseling, and editing. The World Health Organization has this ridiculously transhuman conception of health under its founding constitution. The World Health Organization is committed to a conception of health. Health is a state of complete physical, social, emotional well-being. No sentient being in history has ever been healthy by that incredibly transhumanist definition of health. But the only way to get anything approximating this conception of health is going to be germline editing, gene editing, upgrade our source code. And the WHO isn't ready for this yet. Most people aren't ready for it, particularly Europeans experience a 20th century history. The eugenics movement, of course, you know. Then the eugenics movement wasn't focused on the well-being of all sentience. It was racist, for extremely racist for, for for a start. But, uh yeah, sooner or later, the e word will cop will will crop up. So you support eugenics, kind of. <laughs> mm.
0: So is the technology there? It's just that the governments and the regulations, and even people and as a society, you just feel. It'll take longer to be accepted, even though a lot of the technology that allows us to do this today is there.
1: Yeah, so something like pre-implantation genetic screening, uh, it's actually used more commonly in China and India than it does it is in the West. But it's used for the purposes of gender selection, not mm something you know it would be possible something like the scn9a gene for example the so-called volume knob for pain it would be possible for all parents prospective parents to choose the dial settings of the scn9a gene and thereby effectively turn pain into something just just a useful signaling mechanism and this would be i mean if you think of problems of opioid abuse today uh, so many people's abusing Opioids, because they have chronic uh, pain conditions. Um, think of today's extreme genetic outliers. If you've ever met the kind of person who says, ah, pain, it's just a useful signaling mechanism. Before getting rid of physical pain altogether, turn pain into something that's it's, it's still functional. People with an extremely high pain threshold will still withdraw their hand from the, fu- the fire and so on. But it's it, 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 it it's no longer horrific in the way it is for so many people now. And as I said, we actually understand how to do this, that the SCN9A gene, dozens of different alleles, nonsense mutations, abolish the capacity to experience pain at all. That would be premature. But dozens of other mutations, some that give you or your prospective kid a high or a low pain threshold. Would it be good to actually ensure that your kid is, is their life is at no stage blighted by physical pain? Now, there isn't a single master gene for hedonic tone, hedonic set point, a kind of thermostat for the emotions in the way that there is for physical pain. But the same basic principle is is involved that, yeah, instead of just rolling the genetic dice, prospective parents could actually choose to have happy and eventually super happy kids.
0: Yeah, Um, it's interesting because that you would figure that most like new technology that comes about starts with removing the negative. So, for example, Neuralink, as an example, is starting out with people that have paralysis or people that have all of these issues, and obviously they're going to use that as uh, the same technology, but modify it for like positive things, like like probably higher intelligence or, or memorization. Mm. Is couldn't this be something similar? where we want to help people that face depression or that have mental issues because there's no it's no usage or value to society that we that these people are suffering shouldn't we at least focus on getting rid of those from a regulation perspective and i could understand like yeah like increasing happiness uh would be very helpful but the people that are suffering uh is really no use case right so you're saying even that case isn't going to be something that you see in the horizon because maybe that's like a gateway for if we allow that then people will also expect us to allow other enhancements using genome editing as well like something trivial people, like eye color
1: yeah i most people are unhappy with the notion of enhancement technologies broadly accepting of remediation and <clears throat> In practice, designer baby revolution, reproductive revolution, it's gonna start and start slowly with uh yeah, essentially the obvious genetic diseases, then moving on to genes predisposing to various nasty pain syndromes and depression, and probably much, much later, the idea that ratcheting up. Hedonic range. I mean, if if you think that today, crudely, your life from minus 10 abject despair to hedonic zero to plus ten, absolute sublime best experience of your life, in principle, one can, you know, have a plus ten to a plus thirty civilization, plus seventy to plus hundred, you know, plus ninety to a plus hundred. That's the radical transhuman and posthuman stuff but what is morally urgent at least if like me you're a neo-buddhist negative utilitarian is to get rid of involuntary suffering uh and to do this yeah one can be offering therapies both gene therapies and drug therapies to existing beings but it makes sense if one is going to create life uh, yeah, to give, give people good code, essentially. Um,
0: this is a philosophical question, more or less, but do you think that, similar to how we appreciate light because of darkness or the end because of the yang, do you think if we get rid of most of the suffering that a human faces, that they'll appreciate the highs of the highs, like the happiness as much as they do today? when they don't really know from a, from an early age a, a baby basically won't know the idea of suffering it's
1: probably the most common objection one encounters this idea that pain and pleasure are, are mostly if not entirely relative you can't you know can't get the sweet without the sour that as you were uh, uh, suggesting you can't really appreciate the good things in life without the bad against this though Sadly, tragically, there are millions of people in this world who are chronically depressed and or in pain. And one wouldn't tell to people who are chronically depressed or in pain. Ah, you can't really be depressed because you can't contrast it with joy and so on. No, just tragically, uh, uh, due to the, the luck of the genetic draw and other adverse circumstances, they are chronically below hedonic zero. And at the other extreme, there are people who spend almost all their life above hedonic zero, in some cases, substantially so. And if you know the luckiest of so-called by people, i.e. people who are temperamentally extremely optimistic, cheerful, life-loving.
0: So they have like they a really, higher hedonic adaptation, yeah, you're saying?
1: Yeah, uh, that they can be fully functional, but from a much higher default hedonic uh, set point, And they most certainly love life and enjoy it. Yeah. uh, And these case studies are useful because it shows that it isn't just science fiction. I mean, sure, science fiction is the idea of a a future civilization with a hedonic range of plus 90 to uh, a plus 100. But if you're simply talking of people whose hedonic set point is so high that's, yeah, they fluctuate between, let's say, plus four and plus 10. Uh, they are useful existence proof. But to get to uh, a civilization in which everyone essentially has this extremely high default quality of life, yeah, that will take a biological genetic revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of potential pitfalls. Um Naively, one might imagine that the happiest people will take more risks because they're optimistic. They don't have the kind of depressive realism of some of a, some yeah. of us. But not just industry will
0: do real well with this.
1: Yeah. On the other hand, it's striking though that uh, happy people, people who don't get stressed, people with a high hedonic set point, they tend to live much longer than depressives, uh, and the reason is yeah it, it, essentially the more you love life then other things being equal the more you want to conserve it uh and yeah people who are extremely happy tend to be fanatical uh life lovers people today who work in institutes for existential uh risk uh avoiding various forms of uh yeah global uh, catastrophic existential uh risk they will have extremely high hedonic set points it's depressive who are more likely in many ways, self-neglect, taking risks. They don't love life in in the same way. So though the most certainly will be risks to radical, hedonic uplift, one shouldn't imagine that it's just going to lead simply to recklessness. Um,
0: um, you also mentioned designer drugs as one of the three proposed solutions would you say that this advent and kind of more acceptance of things like psychedelics and mm. this movement that's happening around like microdosing dosing, could that be a form of kind of what you predicted or what you see in the future? Or do you imagine something uh, completely different? Like so we pop a pill and all of a sudden we're we're happy.
1: Number of issues there. I mean, we don't yet have, a soma, uh, a soma from Huxley's Brave New World. And if there were a soma-like drug, this would be an alternative to... uh, What's a
0: soma again, sorry?
1: A soma in Brave New World was this supposedly ideal pleasure drug. Now, for all sorts of reasons, it probably wasn't an ideal drug. It wasn't inducing deep and profound life enriching states of consciousness but nonetheless in huxley's brave new world anyone who took it would have an absolutely uh, wonderful time be extremely happy and wouldn't have a, a hangover in the way uh that people who drink alcohol do uh and though it could be habit forming in brave new world it wasn't it wasn't like uh it wasn't like opioids um whereas alas today there are Uh, although of course there are various marketed antidepressants. We don't have a reliable drug that sustainably boosts people's well-being. One of the reasons may well be that the neurotransmitter system most directly involved in hedonic tone is the opioid system. Essentially, Mm. mu-opioid agonists are antidepressants, but antidepressants with unacceptable side effects so they can't be prescribed for depression so although i am certainly fascinated by psychopharmacology looking at ways yeah drug-based therapies i don't think in the long run uh they're the answer much better to get people's default settings you know from birth high uh rather than trying to treat uh uh, depression um Mm. you mentioned psychedelics. Um, I'm personally quite sceptical of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. For some people, yeah, they have wonderful life-transforming experiences, but the people with the darkest, most Darwinian minds are perhaps most likely to have bad trips. And I think we should, for the most part, postpone exploring psychedelia until we get our reward circuitry sort, sorted
0: out but if it helps people that actually does impact them don't you think that for the people that are a right fit it's more about figuring out if you're the right fit for this specific type of therapy even though it's not prescribed for everyone
1: yeah so a problem can be uh that's informed consent that simply someone who is drug naive can't know in advance what they're letting themselves in for with psychedelics and how one weighs weighs risk reward ratios i don't know um i think once essentially we have a civilization you know everyone can live life based on gradients of bliss we can explore Mm -hmm. psychedelia i think there are millions Billions or more of state spaces of consciousness as different as waking from from dreaming, you know, fascinating stuff to explore there. But in a narrowly therapeutic sense, I'm more cautious than some psychedelic boosters. But once again, I don't want to overgeneralize. Some people really do clearly benefit from these drugs, but they are unpredictable. And yeah. this is not what one wants from, you know, uh, a, ther- uh, a therapy. Uh, and I'm sceptical if there are any true experts when it comes to psychedelics, psychedelia, too. It is completely Outside our concept, conceptual scheme, some of these state spaces opened up by, by psychedelics.
0: Yeah, it seems it needs to be done in a more controlled experiment. Like, whenever I hear about someone just doing ayahuasca in Costa Rica on a mm. weekend because they just found someone at the beach that's offering the service, it's not good, right? It's, it's not going to go well for you. And I do think like it needs to be in a very controlled experiment or experience where you need some form of filtering, whether it's from a a professional expert, which there is no professional expert. That's kind of the issue uh, that can actually qualify whether you've, whether you're a good fit for not. So I agree. I've, I've heard both sides. Like some people have had great experiences, life-changing experiences. Some people have had experiences that honestly, that they couldn't really go back to. They just became a very different person. uh, I'd say in, in a negative way. So yeah, it's it's tough to say what's the um what's there. So you were saying ideally you want to reprogram people from day one that allows them to have a higher hedonic adaptation. What about for people like our uh, like us that were born without the you know the 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 reformatting or the genetic engineering? Ooh. Is that a use case where someone that is already um uh, you know alive in their in their adulthood can get genetic engineering in the future that allows them to change their their dopamine system and their hedonic adaptation system? Yes,
1: Uh, the first uh, forms of gene therapy for existing humans are being trialed. Uh, Transthyrethine amyloidosis was treated by very innovative uh, gene therapy last year. In principle, one can look at, and this is an example I used in a in a paper, give give someone uh, altered versions of the far and far out gene so they can have exceptionally elevated of levels of anandamide for the Sanskrit for bliss, and someone like. Case study Joe Joe Cameron, this this woman with this very unusual dual mutation that gives her uh yeah, essentially elevated levels of anandamide. So she goes through life blissfully happy, but she's socially responsible, retired Scottish school teacher, never anxious or depressed, extremely high pain threshold. I'm glossing over all manner of complications here. But yes, if like you you're of relatively tender years, uh it will be uh in a decade or two, possibly two to three, uh going to be possible to uh have your own genome tweet. Um mm-hmm. but currently the particular trial I mentioned for transhymmetin amyloidosis, I think it would cost several million dollars. This is one of the objections people have to transhumanism: this assumption that it will only be the rich, privileged elites who benefit. And though this wouldn't be the case for something like preimplantation genetic screening, counselling, even genome editing, if it's something like this expensive therapy, yeah, not everyone could uh, spend even hundreds of thousands on a uh, on this on this kind of therapeutic intervention. But yeah, uh, ideally everyone can benefit. Uh, It shouldn't just be future, future generations.
0: What do you see as the most viable solution in the near term that everyone, or almost everyone will have access to that would allow us to tap into one of these super intelligence, super longevity or super happiness? What's kind of on the horizon?
1: good heavens
0: <laughs> you could give a couple of options
1: well yes uh realistically i would say that older people who don't want to miss out should sign up for cryonics maybe even consider cryophanesia and this is uh so uh, though of course it's possible there will be some radical anti aging breakthrough. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, have a backup policy. I will probably opt for cryophanasia, something like the. Age What's of the difference, years. by the way? Cryonics essentially you wait till you're 95, and you know you you die, and then you're suspended. Whereas something like, whereas in the case of cryophanasia, you might choose to have yourself suspended in optimal conditions before you go gaga oh interesting and um once again huge ethical issues here but if you wait until you're 95 you're probably going to be fairly senile even if you're cognitively just about intact you could well be a shadow of your former self what if instead it was a routine that people had the option at the age of 75 or something of hopping in the cryonics uh tank um and that way they could be suspended in optimal conditions suspended
0: Um, as in like you're choosing to end or to to i don't want to say end but you're choosing to pause your life That's a scary thought for people. Like You need to have so much conviction and faith in the future of anti-aging and that someone will actually open up the cryo chamber to wake you up. I'm I'm not convinced,
1: you see. I'm not even convinced that post-human superintelligence will choose to do so. They may regard all Darwinian life as malware, but it keeps options open. And sure. I said, when I say euthanasia I'm not encouraging young people to do this on the off chance it would make it sound like some I already signed up. Neg- <laughs> negative utilitarian launching a, a suicide cult or something. No, this is more that towards, you know, the end of your life, if you're having more senior mo- moments and you realize you're starting to go downhill, but nonetheless, you're you're still all there taking a, a rational decision that, you know, you've had a good innings. From now on, it really is downhill all the way. You're not going to be able to do the things you enjoy doing rather than this decline into decrepitude and senility, just choosing to exit in a dignified uh, way. Uh, and yeah, uh, the possibility of being reanimated at future date, probably much higher the possibility given you've been suspended in optimal conditions if you mm. are uh, suspended eight hours after your death at the age of 95 or something not saying it's impossible that some advanced civilization couldn't reanimate you but it would be technically much more challenging
0: so cryophanesia am i pronouncing the right cryophanesia
1: cryophanesia yes it's a relatively uh, new term yeah mm.
0: Okay. It's, so that's what you're opting word, up yeah. for.
1: I will I I would intend to, uh, I mean, I haven't got all the details uh, sorted out, but yeah, essentially I don't want to wait until I'm 95 and gaga. Uh, I'm not planning anything imminent uh, since I am more or less cognitively uh, intact. uh, Various uh, projects uh, I hope to be uh, uh, undertaking uh, this decade, but yeah, nonetheless, I I don't intend just to uh, crumble away.
0: Well, you seem perfectly healthy and like... (laughs) I mean, it's like, how do you make that bet, right? Obviously, you have inside information about nearing technology that's going to be coming out that will allow you to extend your life a little bit more. But what is that? That's kind of a bet that you're making on your own, right? Because what happens if you decide to do this in like 20 years, but in 25 years or tw- in 30 years, <laughs> there's this upcoming you know, new innovative technology that allows you to live for 40 more years and then by 40 more years because of Moore's law you have more technology that's advancing faster it is this gamble that you're making with uh, your with your life i mean kudos to indeed. you for thinking ahead yeah,
1: yeah it's at the moment sadly there is no one who has probably shown to have uh, celebrated their 120th birthday there's one or two spurious cases like the Kalman case, but essentially 120 below 120 is the upper limit. And if we start to see people living longer, having various uh, forms of uh, upgrade, you know, various uh, drugs are being trialed and so on, then, yes, yeah, some very hard-headed risk reward ratios uh, need to be calculated But at the moment, yeah, if you're sympathetic to transhumanism, but in your 70s or 80s, noticing a decline, no longer really uh, enjoy life, I just think it it should be uh, 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 an option to consider. Or alternatively, yeah. of course, you can, uh, you can, yeah, sign up for cryonics and and wait until, uh, yeah, uh, until you are medic, you know, legally legally dead. But uh, yeah, uh, although one tells heartwarming tales of, you know, people, you know, centenarians. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are actually pretty far gone.
0: This is so fascinating for me because I, I I've never heard of the the term cryonesisia. Um, can we do a quick breakdown around, around this? Like, where do you even go to, like, what are some of the top places that you can go? Is it like the United States? Is it legal in the United States? Do you have to go somewhere else? And like, you have to, because you're basically flying, um, or the UK, I guess also in your case, but like, (laughs) it's almost like if it's only available in China, let's say you have to fly (laughs) and you have to decide that you're going to pause your life in china and you have to get your family there like it so give me the breakdown basically like where is the, well, best in the world to only, do this technically What's the best company? there
1: has there has only been one case that's in california the person did have a serious medical condition and in any case wasn't based in optimal conditions alcor is based in arizona where it wouldn't be alcor. legal but but essentially, anywhere where euthanasia is legal, then it's a, purely a, a question of what, from the point of view of the law, is uh, disposal of the body, uh, or as cryosists uh, would say, the patients. I should stress uh, that this is quite controversial, even in transhumanism. I hadn't especially intended to talk about it in our chat, ha- happy to do so but yeah anywhere where cryonics uh, where sorry where euthanasia is legal uh, then so long as no autopsy is going to be uh, done or anything like that then in principle someone can then then be uh suspended i think though really uh there will need to be a legal revolution uh to many people uh yeah very suspicious, sceptical of yeah cryonics and the cryonics yeah. industry um uh, as I said, I think personally, I think cryonics should be opt out uh and cryophanasia uh, opt uh, opt in although yeah. this strand of the transhumanist movement hasn't been my focus. I have a very dark conception of Darwinian life, most transhumanists are optimists, most transhumanists are life lovers, and if transhumanism, there's something, there can be something almost cruel about telling people science is going to find a cure for day aging after your death. Life is going to be fabulous, but you're going to be dead after it. Well, it's Futurama, uh, right? It's the show. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's yeah. Uh, freezing yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of, I'm also personally a skeptic about, uh, you know, enduring metaphysical egos, in what sense you are the same person as you. As your namesake of uh, last night or a year ago or or ten years ago, but ignoring this kind of stuff by having this as an option one essentially one well it's keeping options open for the for the future if if post human super intelligence wants to reanimate uh Darwinians from our era, they will be able to do so if they have people suspended in optimal conditions or rather rephrase that slightly it is uh quite possible they'll be able to do so um, yeah and this is be... not
0: life advice that you're you're or legal yeah. advice you, you know yeah. even close this is just sharing your own experience yeah,
1: this of, is of this is it and do. and most certainly yeah i'm not urging anyone to <laughs> anyone to yeah it's not a case of encouraging young people it's it, uh, it, it's more that if someone already has a progressive disorder that's going to kill them, or is already a fairly advanced years? Do you just wait? Or do you, yeah, essentially take the opportunity to to do things on terms of your choosing when you're still pretty much intact?
0: So how much does that cost? Like, how does that work from a cost perspective?
1: If one goes, if one is young, and one goes for insurance, it's pretty cheap, uh an older person who spontaneously decides they either want cryothanasia or cryonics, that's that's more expensive.
0: Um but you mean a young yeah. person that decides to sign up for it uh when they're ready. So meaning like if I'm thirty, I can sign up for it uh to do it when I'm seventy, but I yeah. don't necessarily yeah. have to do it now, right? Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. It's like no wonder <laughs> it's cheap. It's like
1: Yeah, it's it's yeah, but I mean personally, as I said, I said I think there should be a legal revolution. That yeah, this ought to be underwritten by uh, the state and society and fully regulated. Now, Max Moore and Alcor has done a very good and professional job, but yeah, essentially, the you know society as a whole ought to take responsibility for this. Now, there's a lot of pushback uh, against. Uh, Cryonics. some people say well it's selling false hope but uh compared to organized religion in an afterlife i would say the odds are much better if you're being reanimated by post-humans or even your great-grandchildren better than the resurrection of the flesh uh in christian doctrine for example
0: so if my mom wants to do this and she's 65 now and she wants to do this in Twenty years or so. Like, are we talking like a thousand dollars a month? Is it more? Like, what 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 is the actual rough range of costs? Ooh, I think expect? costs. I would need to
1: uh, find out here. Different. Uh, if you go for a head job or a whole body job, uh, many people not keen on the idea of just their head, and it's more expensive if it's the whole body. But in the yeah. case of your of your mother. I mean that's I said uh, I would need to uh find out what the uh, the pre- premiums are, but yeah, thousand dollars a month or, or or something like I think the cost you see is around about a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand. I'm I'm worried that I'm out of date telling you this given the rate of inflation at the moment.
0: But yeah, yeah. Uh, give or take a double, right? It so yeah, could I be three hundred
1: thousand. Yeah. Most of people's medical expenses in life tend to come statistically in the most few months, in some cases last few weeks, which is why uh, cryothanasia might be uh, most cost effective. But particularly Mm -hmm. with the exception of radical transhumanists and a handful of people, cryothanasia is still probably far far too radical and controversial, but cryonics, though it may be guarded by many people as as, as kooky doesn't raise the same uh issues and controversies
0: uh but you bring up a good point. there's actually a lot of downside with cryonics and and waiting until the last moments of your death when you're so ill and your brain's not working properly like you're betting that people have technology later on to revive the brain. you're betting like a lot of things that just you just may not be able to get so uh, I would also imagine it costs more from what you're saying as well, because you're waiting until the last moments instead of, you know, paying the insurance earlier yeah, on.
1: Essentially someone may need to, they die somewhere, they need to be flown. Uh, right. Yeah. And yeah, it's basically people are suspended in severely suboptimal conditions. Uh, Is it true that
0: Walt Disney and like Larry King and, and like a few other like major prominent figures went through uh cryonics
1: walt disney apparently it's a myth um but there are yeah i don't know how many people uh precisely yeah walt, walt disney is a myth it's been around cryonics uh for i said my introduction was for robert ettinger the prospect of immortality for yeah four or five decades there have been various scandals too, uh, because the, you know the industry has been poorly regulated. I mean, Alcor is uh, reputable. Max Moore, one of the founders of transhumanism, has done a you know very good professional professional uh, 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 job there. But I think essentially it ought to be available as an option for all. Yes, uh, if. If people start paying their premiums at an early age, it's extremely, extremely modest. But, yeah, it will involve lobbying, I think, for legislative uh, uh, change, too. I mean, the cost could could come down substantially. It could be better regulated, yeah. better accepted. I think there's a case for leaving, having a very large digital footprint some people physically have a kind of camcorder to record all their lives but uh yeah if, if you have a sufficiently large digital footprint this will help your you know assuming that 100 150 years time uh your grandchildren are supervising your reanimation uh how faithful the reanimation is because yeah whatever Killed you, uh, has to be dealt with. Various upgrades are going to be in order. If you ask people how much of an enhancement in terms of everything from looks, cognitive ability, hedonic tone they want, this brings up thorny issues of. Personal identity. Uh, what do you mean
0: reanimation? Meaning, like when you're frozen, a life. lot of yeah, a lot of what you what you had won't really be the same. So you kind of have to re. Yeah,
1: it's a, there is an element of freak. I mean, when you wake up in the morning, you are not physically identical to the person who fell asleep in the night before. uh Nonetheless, most people, when they wake up in the morning, they don't undergo a great existential crisis. You know, our whole Legal system, personal relationships, business, finance, everything presupposes this notion of enduring metaphysical egos. Now, strictly speaking, I think enduring metaphysical egos are a fiction. But yeah, you are a different person from your namesake yesterday, and nonetheless, you probably feel you're sufficiently similar to identify closely with your name with your namesake and. Mm. If it comes to future reanimation, yeah, your namesake waking up will fi- can well feel, yes, this is the real me. I recall, uh, yeah, going into the cryonics tank back in 2065 and, and, and whatnot, but nonetheless, yeah, will not be physically identical in all respects. Uh, so how much in the way of enhancement, improvement, uh, most people will want some change, but not too much. I mean, if, yeah. if you ask someone, "Would you like to win the national lottery?" they'll say, "Of course, yes, I'd love to." But of course, their entire life and identity is likely to change when they do so. If you you know ask people, "Would you like a pill that made you temperamentally more cheerful, boosted your intellect, but by how much, in what sense does one cease to be the person?" One once was.
0: Um, yeah, what if in like 10,000 years, everyone is like seven feet tall and everyone has like three nipples and blue eyes with like <laughs> green hair and like we're just complete aliens, you know? <laughs> just like back in the days of, you know, 10,000 years ago in the Neanderthals. Like it depends, I guess, when you decide to, to when revive. You're, when, yourself.
1: You, when you're re- re- reanimated, one of the reservations many people have about chronics, particularly women, to be rather sexist about it, is that some people just would not want to live in a world in which their family and loved ones and friends were not around, too. Um, men?
0: Yeah. Men have <laughs> no heart. <laughs> Whoa,
1: well, this is it. I'm aware of there are many, many exceptions, and this is very being. <laughs> sexist 20th century dolls. male yeah you know for evolutionary reasons yeah sadly i do know men who yeah they would be very sad not to have their wife and kids around well life goes on and if they wake up woke up you know next century would yeah um so all sorts of issues it's it, yeah. issues there i mean it would be yeah good to chat to someone from alcohol like uh max Moore, you know have a dedicated episode of your show uh on it I love it. that actually
0: yeah yeah uh as, would as, you know someone as, from there
1: yeah i can i can drop uh max more a line or you can uh, uh contacts uh he's contact very um accessible because yeah to cover the different strands of of transhumanism, although I'm said interested in radical life extension, take the usual cocktail of placebos to extend my life and may well opt for this uh, uh cryothanasia. Um yeah, my conception of life on earth is so dark, it's not my it hasn't been my main focus. But mm. if you chat to other transhumanists, for the most part, you'll find that they are. Yeah, fanatical life lovers and optimists, and yeah, you'll get uh, perhaps you know a richer sense of the diversity of the transhumanist movement. More normally, yeah, I tend to focus on pain and suffering, which is a bit.
0: Pressing. That's why I wanted to talk to you. I'm all about pain and suffering, David. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm much more of a realist than a optimist, as much as I mm. appreciate it. Uh, but I think most people are also they play the devil's advocate. For example, Alcor is a private company. So what happens in like, you're kind of betting that this company of Alcor is going to survive and still be viable company that's living and breathing with all of these things that could go wrong with world wars or, you know, the bear market and all these different things. That's kind of the bet you're making, right? When you, when you sign the dotted line.
1: Absolutely. And although I said, I was speaking very, highly of Alcor. Nonetheless, one essentially would want to have state guarantees for something like this. Sure, if you run a private company like Alcor, you don't want to take speculative bets on crypto or anything like that. Essentially, you want massive uh, reserves to be very well financed, though charging premiums that might seem pricey, might seem greedy it's not because you want to be fully financed so that yeah you can you yeah, know weather any but once people are suspended it's not extremely uh you know hard keep keep keeping them in in, in this state but nonetheless yeah it's obviously clearly important to have the right personnel continuity and i would favor seeing everything uh bureaucratized and i should say some transhumanists are very uh libertarian particularly the kind of Extropians are uh, very unsympathetic to state-based solutions with my more kind of european left liberal background i tend to be more state uh uh statist welfare states that yeah i think everyone should have the uh, access sure. to these these technologies Um, but yeah it's clearly worth uh, investigating before uh, yeah taking the plunge
0: yeah last question for you David in a world of transhumanism where that exists with super intelligence everyone is super uh, has super longevity and, and super happiness what does a world like that look for People that want to fall in love, or people that are trying to select the right partners, where currently, evolutionary wise, we're self selecting other people around probably who's going to provide the healthiest newborns. And we're programmatically already wired to find people that are more beautiful or people that will have more resources. And if we can just genetically engineer anyone to be beautiful to be healthy to be happy how does that look for how we select partners a thousand years from now good question
1: i mean one option uh look today at the drug mdma or ecstasy which sadly is short-acting and potentially neurotoxic so it's not a panacea but under the influence of mdma essentially everyone loves everyone else, that one spontaneously uh, hugs strangers of either or of any gender and tells them how wonderful they are. You love yourself. You love others. You have an authentic sense of this is the real me. So it's not drugged in the way psychedelics are. But nonetheless, uh, MDMA creates an idealized version of yourself and a very rose-tinted honesty for others everyone looks beautiful imagine a world in which uh yeah essentially in society everyone genuinely did love each other instead of the kind of quasi sociopathic coldness towards other people you know you go go out in the street and even if you think of yourself as Benevolent. You tend to be very kind of suspicious, nervous. Is this person going to bump into me or ask me for money and so on? And this very, yeah, kind of cold Darwinian state of consciousness. But imagine a world in which people were loved up all the time. Um, if it had helped our genes leave more copies of themselves in the ancestral environment, life could be like that today. This would just seem normal, loving each other, uh, giving spontaneous giving each other hugs, this kind of of consciousness. Um, A thousand years from now, will society be like this? Honestly, I don't know. The more specifics one goes into, the more likely one is to be wrong. MDMA-like consciousness would be my version of paradise. But uh, just hearing it described like this, You know, it would leave some people. Not everyone likes the thought of uh, hugging strangers, uh, 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 so to speak. But, yeah, if you look at romantic love today. Uh sadly, if you love someone or in love with someone, there's very high likelihood you'll end up hating them or divorcing them. If, if you marry, it is so dysfunctional. Romantic love resembles obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, all kinds of Darwinian forces at play. And I would personally be much more comfortable with the idea of getting rid of this kind of obscure, you know effective psychosis of o c d and instead you know a broader sense of loving and valuing all sentient beings, but mm. for the foreseeable future, this is uh utopian, but it's gonna be a technical option for the future, whether we roll with it, whether we go for it, I don't know, but yeah, life doesn't have to be. Quasi sociopathic in the way it is today. If you just think of the way we treat other sentient beings and unhuman animals, and in many cases, sadly, uh, members of yeah other other uh, other tribes, other ethnic groups, uh, other classes, uh, yeah, life doesn't have to be like this.
0: The 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 only thing I'm visualizing after you said that is just orgasms, polygamous relationships, and open relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves everyone. There's no hate, and oh, man. I'm British and and
1: Prudish, but yeah, the sensual elements there. I mean, arguably, prudery has blighted as many relationships as uh, as as excess as sensualism too. But uh, yeah, pleasures of the ple- flesh, pleasures of the spirit. If we are prepared to intervene. Directly and upgrade our reward circuitry. Life, everyday life, could be far richer than yeah your 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 kind of peak experience, and it doesn't need to be at anyone else's expense. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this this is the beautiful thing. If we're prepared to upgrade our reward circuitry, that's yes. a big if.
0: I think that's a happy ending to end this great conversation with David. Where can people find out more about you? We'll have all the links that I mentioned. Uh, below, but where can people find you online? Uh,
1: my mother load website set up 1996, 95, 96, state of the art web design last century, headweb.com, H E D W E B dot com, headweb.com. And yeah, the links from there you'll find all the rest of it. Um, And yeah, anyone who wants to get in contact feels I've just skated over the issues, uh, drop me a line. But uh, yeah, Sean, thanks very much for this interview. I've enjoyed it.
0: I loved it. Thanks so much, guys, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right, ciao.